My guest is Christopher Tugendhat. Baron Tugendhat of Whittington has been a journalist with the Financial Times, a member of the House of Commons, an MP, a European Commissioner, and now sits in the House of Lords. He has many, many other positions as well, but they're too numerous to mention now. Most importantly, for the purpose of this podcast, he is the author of a new book, The Worm in the Apple, A History of the Conservative Party and Europe from Churchill to Cameron. Welcome to the podcast, Christopher. Thank you very much. Well, we, before we uh, start talking about the book and the main themes of your book, Christopher, which I find a, a really fascinating reader, I want to talk a bit about you and, and the kind of the big European chunk of your long distinguished career. Uh, you'd been in the House of Commons for about, I think, seven years when uh, the then Prime Minister James Callaghan uh, nominated you to be a European Commissioner, I think at the tender age of, of 39. I mean, were you surprised when you got the news that you were about to become a European Commissioner nominated by a Labour Prime Minister? Well, I was absolutely flabbergasted <laughs> to be offered the post. Um, the etiquette was that the Prime Minister nominated both the Conservative and the Labour commissioners. So Ted Heath had nominated Christopher Soames and George Thompson. And so when their terms came to an end, Callaghan was Prime Minister. Uh, and he at the suggestion of Schmidt and Giscard, nominated Roy Jenkins, who became president. And Margaret Thatcher thought that she had the nomination, but in fact, there was no precedent for that. And Roy Jenkins, um, for reasons which are still a mystery to me, wanted me to accompany him. And he asked Callaghan, and so Callaghan asked me. But the initiative came from... Roy Jenkins, I was totally surprised, it never expected it, but I had no hesitation in accepting. It seems like a, another time, another world, frankly, when you have yourself obviously in the European Commission as a very pro-European Conservative Commissioner, and in that first term of office when you were a Commissioner, as you just mentioned, Roy Jenkins was president of the European Commission. Obviously, the, the EEC as it then was, it was a much smaller club, I think nine member states in those days. But could you give a flavour of the of the atmosphere in the commission around the, the so-called college table amongst the commissioners? Well, for me, and as you say, I was very young and it, it, it was a great experience. For me, it was very exciting because one had the impression that one was really at the beginning of something new, that one was creating something that hadn't existed before, that one was making precedents. And so all that was very exciting. Um, a problem that Roy Jenkins and I both had was that one of the issues that was very prominent at that time, and which I write about in my book, uh, was a row over the British budget contribution. And as I was the budget commissioner and therefore tasked initially with producing the commission's um, estimates and proposals and so forth, I say initially because everything had to be agreed by the commission as a whole, but that did put us, Roy Jenkins and myself, into a somewhat exposed position. Uh, but it was very exciting and you know, one was dealing, I felt, with some of the best minds from some of the best education systems in the world. And that, too, had a rather intoxicating feel. So for me, it was a, it, it, it was a very stimulating period. 
Well, you, you served two terms as, as European Commission. I think I'm right in saying you kept the budget and the broader budget control financial institutions portfolio throughout the two terms. But halfway through your first term, uh, Margaret Thatcher became prime minister, if I'm not mistaken. Did that create any complications for you when you, were, when you suddenly found that your own party was back in power back in the UK? Well, it, it did create uh, complications, which I, I mentioned in the book, because Margaret Thatcher had a very black and white view of, of the world and of loyalties and so forth. And, and she had difficulty in understanding that my job was as a commissioner, not as a British representative. There was a, a perfectly good British representative called Sir Michael Butler, but right. she had difficulty in understanding that my role was as part of the Commission and that the Commission's duty lay to the European Union as a whole. Well, now, a duty to the European Union as a whole meant, of course, that the Commission's proposals should be fair to Britain, just as they should be fair to other people. That was certainly the case. And, and commissioners had, a, had a, a duty to make sure that the Commission reflected fairly the, the views and interests of the country from which they came. But their overwhelming duty was to make sure that the Commission's proposals were in the interests of the European Union as a whole. And, and that did create some difficulty with Margaret Thatcher. But Nonetheless, she did reappoint me when my appointment came to an end. And so instead of being the junior commissioner uh, under Roy Jenkins, I became the senior British commissioner, vice president, with Ivor Richard as the, as the Labour nominee. One of the, of course, the main themes of your book is tracing uh, and trying to investigate the moment of which, or maybe it's very incremental, um, when the Conservative Party just went down this Eurosceptic path. Uh, obviously, in the, in the heyday of, of Ted Heath, and, and to be fair, his predecessors bringing the UK into the EEC as it then was, and then Margaret Thatcher obviously takes over as leader of the opposition, then Prime Minister. And at the, at the, at the, at the beginning, one, one tends to forget that she voted very much in, in, in favour. She was a Remainer in the 1975 uh, referendum. And in her first cabinet, uh, as you know much better than I, there were some very strong, uh, distinguished pro-European members of her cabinet. So at what point do you think that she, as Prime Minister, uh, started becoming uh, more Eurosceptic? Well, I think as Prime Minister, she always remained in favour of British membership of the European Union. It was only after she left office that she moved, I think, into an antagonistic position. But the, the real point of of danger, for want of a better word, was over the British budget contribution. There was a real problem. Uh, Britain was at that time one of the poorest members of the European Union. It was the second largest contributor. It was on the way to becoming the largest contributor. And my view then and now is that as the two leading statesmen in Europe, President Giscard and uh, France and Chancellor Schmidt of Germany, should have taken her to one side and should have uh, said, listen, there's a problem, we've got to sort it out and, um, and let, let's get this behind us. And instead, they put her up against a wall and made her fight for it. And of course, she fought very successfully. 
But the result of that was that she realized that conflict went down very well in Britain <laughs> and she became the Iron Lady and everybody else had to show that they could go six rounds with her whenever they came to London. And conflict became embedded in the British media and the British public's image of Europe. It was as a result of the British budget contribution. And then that was made worse when uh, President Delors, very unwisely in my view, chose the British TUC Congress mm -hmm. as the place at which he would make a major speech setting out his views for a social Europe. Well, his views for a social Europe were always bound to cause some difficulty with Mrs. Thatcher, but by making the speech at the TUC Congress, he really was throwing down the gauntlet um, to her great domestic enemy. And that led to the, the Bruges speech. And so you, you got embedded in the British psyche, the sense of, of them against us. Um, and then when Margaret Thatcher fell, although her fall was mainly the result of the poll tax, um, it was caught up with a number of disputes over Europe. And so the right wing of the Conservative Party saw Europe as the banner around which it tended to gather. And she then very seriously undermined John Major when he attempted to, to put things back on, on an even keel. Your book makes it very clear that when she left office, uh, she became more and more hostile both to, to the European project and also to her successor. But while she was still prime minister, since you mentioned Jacques Delors, Christopher, um, there was this thing called the single market program. And the UK was very much instrumental, as you know, in uh, in making that a reality. And your immediate successor, Lord Cofield, Arthur Cofield, took that particular portfolio on and by all accounts executed with great with great expertise. So while there was this sort of playing to the gallery going on in the UK and the, and the media liking all this Brussels bashing, is it fair to say that quietly and, and rather uh, below the radar, the UK was playing, a, without trying to put words in your mouth, a, a pretty constructive role in, in Europe by at least through the single market programme? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And not only in relation to the single market, certainly in relation to the single market. But I think Britain was extremely constructive in putting, helping to evolve a common approach to foreign policy uh, and defence. And I, I think we, we played a, a very useful role there. I think, too, that Britain provided sometimes a balance. Um, uh, you had the Franco-German axis on the one hand and the smaller member states on the other. Britain provided a balance. Britain was also extremely um, constructive and helpful in relation to the enlargement of the community to the East. Uh, Margaret Thatcher herself, in her famous Bruges speech, which is so often taken as anti-European and in some respects was, she not only restates her commitment to the European Union, but she talks in a very far-sighted fashion about enlarging it to the East before many other people were doing so. I'd like to move on briefly, Christopher, to the, the two referenda, the um, 1975 one and the 2016 one. You say in your book that there was actually the, the, the fear factor present in both, but in 1975 was where there is this fear factor, therefore we should stay in. 
Whereas in 2016, there was a fear factor, therefore we should leave. Could you amplify that, your, what you meant by that? Well, in, in 1975, if you cast your mind back, it was the period of high inflation and particularly high um, in Britain, over 20% in, in some years. There were the troubles in, in Northern Ireland. There had been the miners' strike, which had brought Ted Heath down. When Christopher Soames, my predecessor, coined a phrase, and he said Britain in its present state shouldn't leave a Christmas club, let alone a common market. <laughs> he actually captured the way in which a lot of people were, were thinking. And the, then the two leaders of the pro-Europe camp, Roy Jenkins and Ted Heath, were both are extremely articulate and were able to relate the argument over over remaining in the EU to the great issues of war and peace, as well as uh, to economics. And they were much more eloquent than, and carried much more authority uh, than the um, people opposed. And at that time too, the sovereignty fears, which have loomed so large in, in Britain's attitude towards the European Union, and which I'm afraid were rather obfuscated when we joined, they were very much in abeyance. Um, the European Council had just been formed and people thought that meant that it, the Commission would be reined in. Uh, Chancellor Schmidt was talking about federalists as living in cloud, Euro cloud, cuckoo land, yeah. and so forth. So that the fear of, uh, of what the British would regard as excessive integration was, was rather low. And then the common agricultural policy, which was such a bete noire of Britain for so long, um, was actually rather popular at that time. You had the oil embargo in the Middle East as a result of the Yom Kippur War. You had the shortage of a lot of raw materials. The Club of Rome had just reported about how we were going to run out of everything. And the common agricultural policy looked as if it was a safeguard. So remaining in Europe was the safe thing to do. Um, whereas in 2016, it was very different. In, in 2016, the British people were much more worried about integration than they were about the economic fallout. And of course, you also had immigration and immigration played a very large role. Tony Blair, I'm afraid, made a big mistake in 2004 when the countries of Eastern Europe joined and most of the member states had availed themselves of a derogation whereby full freedom of movement wouldn't take place for a number of years. Tony Blair said, we don't need that. People can come straight away. The result was, of course, that very large numbers came and um, immigration became terribly caught up with the whole issue of Europe uh, to a very damaging extent. Well, since you mentioned Tony Blair, obviously your book does not talk uh, in any great detail about the Labour Party, that is not its uh, uh, purpose. But was there a kind of intersection when, of course, when when Ted Heath was Prime Minister and the early years <coughs> of Margaret Thatcher's premiership, the, the Conservative Party obviously clearly pro-European and the Labour Party under Michael Foote in particular was, was anti-European. That's not a secret. 
but was there at some point down in the years to come when there was an intersection when all of a, almost all of a sudden the Conservative Party was seen as the, the anti-European party and the Labour Party the more pro-European party? Or was, were they quite incremental, the developments on both sides? Well, I think that developments on both sides were incremental. I mentioned um, Jacques Delors speaking at the TUC right. conference and how that antagonised Margaret Thatcher. It played a very important role in reconciling the Labour Party to Europe and bringing the Labour Party round. And then T uh, Tony Blair, of course, saw a big role for Britain in Europe and, and made Europe more of a Labour Party issue. So that also tended to push the Conservatives in the in the other in the other direction. Um, but I I think the the damage done by the decision over 20, in 2004 over immigration was a, a very serious one. And then, of course, I think Cameron made a big mistake in never speaking up for Europe. I mean, he wanted mm. Britain to remain within the EU, um, but he didn't, he never defended um, the EU and, until far too late, which made him a, a somewhat less than credible champion when eventually he did so. Well, in this last part of our, of our conversation, Christopher, I'd like to talk about a bit about the future, uh, looking forward, not looking back, and, and, and the future relations between the, the UK and the EU. I think even most fervent, ardent uh, pro-Europeans accept that Brexit is reality. We've left the European Union quite clearly. The transition period has been over for 15 months or so. Uh, and so we have to look to the future. I mean, how optimistic, if at all, are you about the, the, the prospect for relatively congenial, uh, amicable and constructive relations between the, the EU and the UK uh, in the future going forward? Well, first of all, it is very important that there should be a constructive relationship. I mean, Britain is a, a very substantial country, uh, one of the seven largest economies in the world on Europe's doorstep. What Europe does is important to Britain. What Britain does is important to Europe. And, and if there are any blessings to arise, I mean, it's dreadful to talk in these terms, but if there's any benefit to ar arise from the Ukrainian uh, war, it has, I think, helped to bring Britain and the EU closer together instead of exchanging ruderies over fishing and the Northern Ireland Protocol and so forth, um, Britain and the EU have been facing a common challenge and working together on it. And I hope that that will, uh, how can I put it, I hope that that will bring about the habit of cooperation in a way that might not have been possible without a crisis of this, of this sort. Um, we must find a way of developing um, structures and forums in which we can exchange views and in which when our interests uh, run together, uh, we, can, we can work together. We must also recognise that both Britain and the EU represent a challenge to each other. I mean, the challenge for Britain is that the EU is our uh, our much larger neighbour, our much larger trading partner. Our position in relation to the EU is a bit like Canada and Mexico in relation to the United States. And, and when the elephant rolls over, that can be difficult for its neighbours. But on the other hand, 
uh, Britain is a very substantial country outside the EU. And if Britain does something well uh, or better than the member states are able to do, as for instance occurred at the beginning of, of 2021 with the, with the vaccine rollout, that represents a very considerable challenge to the EU. So far, the EU has never had a large country on its doorstep capable of pursuing separate and independent policies. And if it should occur that uh, Britain from time to time pursues separate and independent policies that are more successful, uh, that will give uh, create some difficulties within the EU. But rivalry is one thing. Cooperation and working together is very, very important and in the interests of both sides. And I hope that the Ukraine war, amongst all its horrors, will have helped to have um, overcome some of the bitterness of the divorce and to create precedents for working, working together again. Well, on that optimistic, uh, relatively upbeat note, we have to bring this to a close. Uh, Christopher Tukenhardt, thank you very much for your time. Okay, well, thank you. And